Welcome to episode 14 of Book Lovers Companion. For this episode, I had the pleasure of an intriguing conversation with Jane Alden, winner of the 2019 Leswig Bard Award. Learn more about being a woman in the American South, Jane's books, and what she's currently working on. Nice to see you again. Nice to see you. Thank you. How are you? I am fantastic today, actually. Good to hear. And I love having great ideas. That's always good to hear, especially from an author. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Good. Wonderful. So you have nice weather as well. It's beautiful today in California, Southern California. Yeah. It's great. Well, lucky you. The last few days haven't been so nice here. Cold and windy and rain, but we shall not moan because we need the rain. Since the whole thing started, I've only read two books. Mm. This is this is no, no, no. It's hard for me to read while I'm writing. I read, I do a lot of research and I read specific books that relate to whatever I'm working on. And I don't, I don't read a lot for pleasure. So, and in the last uh, two or two and a half years, I've been writing all the time. So I haven't read an awful lot for, for pleasure. I go back and read the oldies, but goodies, the classics. I read those over and over <laughs> because they're so well done and interesting. Actually, my, my bright idea this morning yes. is I'm, I'm going to put on my web on my uh, Facebook, I'm going to invite people to tell me what their favorite love scene is. And they can tell me why, if they want, or they can just say, say what it is. I think that'll be fascinating. It's an interesting question and an, an interesting and intriguing idea, actually. I would have to think about it a lot. I'm not on Facebook, so don't worry. I would have to think quite a while to think of a f really favorite love scene. So I, I couldn't really say just from the top of my head. I have to admit, it's the same with the question, what's your favorite book? It usually is the book I read at the time. <laughs> right. So so I couldn't really say I have this author especially or this book especially. But I would say this book or that book was or I thought about it for a very long time, even after I finished it. But I couldn't say this is my, this is the one book Mm -hmm. I have to admit, which is interesting because I once listened to an interview with Christopher Lee and mm -hmm. I think he also knew Tolkien personally. Mm. And he mentioned in one of the interviews that he read The Lord of the Rings every year. Mm. I, could, I could see that. It's a very dense You can read it on lots of different levels. You can read it when you're 12 and years old and, and uh, it's a fairy tale. And you can read it as an adult and it's a, an object lesson. or a Yeah, but it's also a great adventure when you come to think of it. It is. But and I, it's very dark, yeah. really. Yeah, at some point, definitely. I have to admit, I struggled through the first part because I thought, will it ever end? Will it ever, <laughs> will it ever end and will it ever get more interesting? To be quite honest, <laughs> to be quite honest. And my co-host, my German co-host asked me the other week when we talked about Lord of the Rings, he said, and why did you read the, the second and the third part? And I said, because I was hoping for some action. Mm. And I wasn't disappointed. Mm. So, yeah, but I read it in German at the time. It was shortly before the first film came out. And I thought, I want to read it before I watch the film so I can get an idea what it is all about. 
Thanks again, Jane, actually, for doing it again. <laughs> and for our listeners, I have to, maybe I should say why I say again, because the first time I ran into some trouble with my recording device. And the second time we had some issues with the internet, I think, or maybe it was the conference software. I don't know. We're doing it again. So I'm glad to see you again. Zoom seems to be fine. Yeah, let's hope so. Let's move to my first question again. I know it might be tedious for you, but what you told me last time when... Not tedious to talk about yourself and your books. <laughs> no, never. it's not. It's never. Authors should be allowed to do that as much as they wish to. And I'm actually, I love to listen to you authors talk about mm. your, your passion. You told me quite interesting things about your background, about your past, where you grew up and what it was like for you. You know, I thought about I thought about our conversation before and I'm wondering are your listeners mainly from the US or are they mainly from Europe or That's an interesting That's an interesting question because when I look at the statistics on Anchor It says for the English podcast, most of our listeners or my listeners come from the United States. First place. So uh, the United States are first place, Austria second place, and then uh, I think it's Germany. And a lot of other countries, which is quite interesting, Norway and even Australia. But I can't really say if the listeners are really from the US or if they just hide their IP addresses. Yes. But let's presume they are from the United States. Mostly. U.S. And so people from the U.S. are, are very familiar with the, the South of the, of the U.S. And we talked about how different regions of the U.S. are culture is very different. I grew up in the South. I grew up in Arkansas, which is sort of a border state. If you think about the Civil War, it's it's not Mississippi and it's not uh, Alabama, which is, is considered deep South. It's not Missouri, which is considered a real border state. So it's it's um, it's a little bit it's a little bit interesting. But I grew up there and went to undergraduate school. So as soon as I graduated college, I came to California, and I'd always planned to do that. Always aspired to do that. I had a picture of what Calif the freedom that would be available for me as a lesbian in California. It happened to be true. <laughs> but so I grew up in Arkansas, and but but very young. To, I think I was 21 years old. I came to California, and I've lived. Uh, I'm 75 now. So and yet, people from the U.S. will be able to hear a little bit of an accent in my speech. And I stay in touch with friends that I went to grade school and high school with. And I go back and visit. I have two brothers who live back there still. So you never really lose that steeping that you have in the culture of a place, even though now I've lived in California for so long. You said you can still being a southerner in your accent. So I'm not from the United States, I'm from Europe. And the only woman I've ever known from the south of the United States is Blanche Devereaux mm. from Golden <laughs> Girls. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not authentic. I'm sorry. <laughs> so, so you would say she, she didn't do a good job? Oh, you know, I'm probably too critical about accents. I sort of like to study accents. New Orleans has a 
accent, Chicago has an accent, New York has an accent. Whenever an actor is portraying somebody from the South, it's it's easy to go off the rails. Let me just put it that way, both in terms of the idioms that they use and, and also the accent. But she was very funny and that was that was her purpose. And most of the people watching that show uh, didn't watch it for the accent. You know, she was great and funny but not authentically Southern. There was something interesting last time you said about the place where you came from. Yes. You said the way people acted or behaved was quite different from the way people in California behaved. What I mean is you, you said people in California are a bit more outgoing. Yes. And whereas people from the South where you grew up are a bit more stiff upper lip, we called it, because you said... It's there. It's it's also about their past. It's where they come from, or their ancestors came from. Yeah. Well, the the Arkansas Arkansas was settled by Irish and Scot and uh, English. So that's the that's the background. The culture is the norms are that you uh, you don't disclose an awful lot about your family. Family problems stay in the family. You don't go out and talk about your feelings and you don't go out and ask about other people's feelings. You don't ask how much money do you make? <laughs> that that's just not done. In California, on the other hand, people are very open about their feelings. Sometimes you wish they would back off a little bit about the openness that they have with their feelings and You mentioned the last time we talked that this is kind of the image that Americans have in Europe is more the California where people are more open and out there and self-centered and, and that sort of thing. So I've had I've had both of those and one has to have a sort of a dial. When I visit Arkansas, I have to dial back the culture that I've learned having having lived in California. And sometimes people I can I can see their eyes glaze over and they don't don't tell me that, you know. But it, it was um, that was certainly that was certainly true growing up. We don't we didn't uh, we were sort of the opposite of an what I think an Italian family would be like, where there's a lot of shouting, there's a lot of openness, there's a lot of uh, expression of uh, uh, open expression of feelings, and we were very my family is very staid, very quiet comparatively. Yeah, you're probably right because. It's also quite different in, in Europe as well, because when you think of the southern countries, they're also, I would say, more outgoing and more expressive compared to the ones who are more in the north. Yeah. So uh, I would say, yeah, yeah, so I would certainly say so, uh -huh. because I would say it has a lot to do also with the weather. Yes. Because okay. when you live in, in Italy or Spain or let's say Greece, It's the warm weather, people spend a lot of time outdoors and they chat to each other. It's not, it's not, it's not that we are that distant, but like you said, you wouldn't ask a, let's say, a cashier in the supermarket, how are your kids or something like that. Uh. Or, or people you just met, you don't, you wouldn't tell them your whole story. Right. Right. So with the coronavirus distancing, you know, people are, people are out more walking with their families, walking their dogs, jogging, bicycles, that sort of thing. And they're more likely to engage with you across the street. You know, hello, how are you? Even though you, you don't know them. And, and uh, I think we have a basic human urge to connect 
at least we do here where I live, it seems like to me, in California. And if, if, you, if you apply this to writing and, and to books and to authorship, how you write dialogue, how one writes dialogue is you have to be, your craft is, is to develop an ability to stand in, in your character's shoes because your characters aren't you hardly ever uh, in fiction and to be, you know, to be in, in that person's head in terms of how would they say something, how, what would they say, how would they react if, if you're going to write really good dialogue. I love dialogue and I've written two books and in those two books, I think dialogue, dialogue and, and sort of scene setting were, were my favorite part. Yeah, scene setting has a lot to do also with how the reader perceives the book, doesn't uh -huh. it? And I think it also has to be that good that you feel as if you are watching a movie when you read. Yes, I told you the story of my, my second book, which is Jobina's Blues, is set in the 20s in Southern America. And then it goes forward for the second part to the, to the 70s in, in America. And, and my characters, several of my main characters are African-American. And so writing the dialogue and getting the culture right for, those, for that story was really, really important to me and, and important to the book. And to do that, um, there's an organization called the Golden Crown Literary Society. They have a service where they'll list beta readers. And you can, you can go, if you're a member, you can go on their website and uh, identify people who enjoy the kind of writing you do, historical fiction in this case they are willing to read your book, your manuscript and advise an author on things like dialogue and culture and, and the scene. And they were so important to me in writing this, these characters because I'm clearly a very white lady. <laughs> I am from the South. And so there are a lot of things that I had lived and experienced, but certainly not in the same way. It goes without saying that a that an African-American woman in the 1920s would have experienced it. I got really, really good help with doing that. And not only about the African-American part, but also I wrote, a, I wrote a scene where a man was coming back from World War I and he was courting one of the characters. She asked him, did you ever kill anybody? And my beta reader had been in the military And she said, this is, not a, this is not a thing that a caring person would ask another person. And unless you're trying to say your character is clueless about what this would mean to, to this man, you shouldn't say that. So I, ch I changed it to, were you ever afraid? And that was really, really helpful and useful. And so the beta readers in the, in the case of Jobina's Blues were really, really helpful. And you also said that there was no negative reactions towards you for writing for writing African-American characters? Right. Many of the, my beta readers were African-American, so I, I, I really wanted their honest feedback about that. And the feedback that I got was that just the opposite of negative. It was very positive that the culture and the, and the dialogue and everything was all right. I certainly didn't try to, like Blanche Devereaux, <laughs> become one of those characters because that would have been 
very inauthentic and but I think it I think it worked. And I know it's it's a very mean question to ask an author, but do you have in Jubinus Blues, do you have a favorite character? Oh. Wow. Huh. Well, Jobina. Jobina was a was a blues singer, very complex character, very talented, a genius really, and yet flawed as we all are. And Didi, Didi flashing forward to the 1970s was an English pop star and she was she was a fascinating also a genius character also flawed. I guess uh, maybe I'm kind of thinking out loud about that. So I guess that's what what appeals to me. <laughs> and you also said last time some of the characters or some parts of the story are based in fact. Yes. My little hometown that I live in here in California, a woman that I know was in a relationship with a with an English pop star in the 1970s. And she went over and lived with her, I think, for nine years or something during really kind of the peak of this uh, of this singer's popularity in England. So I started writing Jobina's Blues. It wasn't called Jobina's Blues about about that story, about how my friend met this pop star and uh, how they got together and so on. It was it was not a happy story, true story. And so my idea was to make it a happy story. As I was writing that story, then the characters from 1920 showed up and one one of the main characters is a is a grandmother of of the of the characters in uh, in 1970 so that's how that's how that happened and you said Jobina the character in your book is a genius singer blues singer and is she based on some real person or is she a, a combination of of more than one She's person from a mashup of uh you know Bessie Smith and and I guess Bessie Smith would be the the most like her. She's a kind of an amalgam of of uh, many different blues singers in that time and they were very successful. They there were there were theaters throughout the south that uh, were were African American only. If white people came, it had to be on a special night and the white people had to sit in the balcony. There was a booking agency that booked these acts throughout the South and they, they played in very elaborate theaters and they packed packed the house and it was after the first, between the First World War and the Second World War before the Depression. It was an interesting time. But yeah, she's she's kind of a, a put together of, of several of those of those women singers, and they were women who were very much in control and in charge of their own careers. But they couldn't come right out and be that. They had to have men kind of as their front to be successful. So there's part of that in the book too. Been thinking of Little T, her um, yeah, manager or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because that would have been my next question. Because she seems so capable in your book, and yet there was this little guy, little guy. I don't know if he's, he's little, but um, the way he behaved towards her, it was as if he owned her. Yes, yes, he did, and she let him think he did. She really used him in a way too, because she needed him to drive the band around and to keep them away from the chorus girls. And to you know, be a, a strong arm to negotiate contracts with the white establishment. To yeah, he was a, he was the kind of the little bantam rooster. That's how I pictured him. <laughs> and we, yeah, and we should also mention that you've won an award for Jubinus Blues, the Les Fick Bard 
award for fiction. Yes, I got I got that about two weeks ago, and the lovely award came in the mail. Very beautiful. I was、uh, just totally totally blown away. Congratulations! Yes, thank you. Because I've、thank、only I have to say I've only finished your book yesterday. Oh, yeah. The, yours is the second book I got to read since、oh, okay. this whole thing happened. <laughs> I'm honored. <laughs> it was it was a good read. I wanted、good. I wanted to finish it earlier, but I spent so much time in front of this this thing. I sometimes I feel as if I want to throw it out of the window because yeah, it, it it leaves me so little time to read. But I finished it before our conversation today, and in the end, I won't give anything away. Don't、yeah. don't worry. But、yeah. I was pleasantly surprised at how you、okay. end how you ended. The story, okay. How you ended Joby because she's my favorite character. I have to be honest. Okay, I like、yeah. her.、Uh, the surprise was who she went into the sunset with. Yes, I won't give anything away. Read it, no, dear listeners.、No. Read it for yourself. It's an interesting twist. I was hoping for this. I have to say.、Yeah. And your first book, we talked、yes. about it last time. On FaceTime, it was also interesting、mm-hmm. because you said you were inspired by Patricia Highsmith's "The Price of、yes. Salt" for your first book. Yes, "Across a Crowded Room" is the name of my first book. I had never—I was an English major in college. I had one creative writing class that I'm embarrassed to say I did not pay. Any attention in at all? Wish I had paid better attention, but and and I was have been in business for many 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 years. Been in the healthcare administration business, very busy, lots of responsibility. And over the years, I've done business writing articles and 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 that sort of thing. And and I've got a I got a really good grounding in college in grammar, so I've got. Got that covered. I discovered the price of salt and rediscovered it. And in reading it, I don't know why, but reading it the second time, this one scene in the book just hit me between the eyes because it was so like an experience that I had in in my life. It, it was very different, but the the emotions called up the the same thing. And、um, so so I was motivated to write. A story to write to write that down, and the woman that was in my life that this happened died about two years ago of breast cancer, and she was struggling at the time that I started the book. So I'm sure that gave me some motivation to write down my story as well. But that's that's where across the crowded room came. In across the crowded room, there's a scene that one of the main characters describes of that is exactly what happened to me. So that was that. And in the in the Patricia Highsmith book, The Price of Salt, which you and I agreed is not a really good title. We talked we talked about titles. Yeah. But but she Therese is is the character's name, and Therese is working in a store. In New York, like Bloomingdale's, wasn't called Bloomingdale's in the book, but in the toy department, she's a temporary there, and she's very young. I think she's nineteen or something, and she's standing behind the counter. This all takes place in the nineteen fifty, nineteen fifty-one. She's standing behind the counter, and she looks up and across the room, and this incredibly riveting woman. Their eyes meet at the same time, and that starts off the whole story of Therese and Carol, and and the whole thing. And that sim a similar thing to that happened to me, which which I wrote about 
in across a crowded room. And you also said, I think, that Patricia Highsmith had, a, had also a similar first meeting with a woman because she also worked at the shop at Christmas time, didn't she? Well, I've read a couple of biographies of Patricia Highsmith, and apparently she never really met the woman. She wrote about her. She got on a, a train and sort of stopped the woman but never really met her and never really revealed herself. And the woman actually wound up committing suicide. Yeah, it's, uh, it was quite a story. In the book, they, they do strike up a relationship. And I also told you, since we agreed that The Price of Salt is not a really good title, like I said, in the German title was Carol or is Carol. Uh -huh. So I think it's a bit more fitting. And that, would be, that was the title of the movie that they made a couple years ago too yeah and i have to say i liked the the film i did too very much i think they did a good job also the, the actresses they chose i think they fitted quite well in the in the roles and the characters from the book yeah i enjoyed it too i was waiting for it i couldn't i couldn't wait to get my hands on oh, it i know it took ever for them to to make that movie and in years and years and years i I think her estate owns the, the t rights to it. And there was some kind of, you know, go around about that. And I also read somewhere or heard somewhere that Patricia Highsmith had a thing for snails. Uh, yeah. She, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she was a little weird. She wrote that book in 1950, I think, when it was a out thing to do. She wrote it as Claire Morgan. Okay. Yes. I'm not sure when it was published in German, actually, but because mm -hmm. the copies I, I ever saw, they always had her her name, her real name, not mm -hmm. her, not a pen name or pseudo pseudonym on mm -hmm. on the, on the front page. I liked it. I have to say, I liked it. I read it when I was 20. and I have to say, I was I, I couldn't put it down back then. Yes. Me too. It Especially was, the second half for some reason. And I also, I read it in German, actually. Mm -hmm. I didn't read it in English. I think I haven't read it in English. Maybe I should read it a second time in English this time. And your next book is also in the making. Yes. Death Comes on Swift Wings. Oh. Yeah. It's a murder mystery. Yeah. And you also said it's, it, takes, it, it takes place again in the past. It's, yes. It's uh, in the 70s. Right. And it's in uh, Egypt, mainly set in New York City and Egypt. It's my first murder mystery. Uh, it's very, very much of a challenge. I did a lot of research about, about uh, how to write a mystery. There's tons of really good information online, good advice about writing a mystery. And it's very different than writing another, for me, writing another genre. It's almost like you write it backward. It's like a patchwork quilt. It's not linear, at least my experience of it. It's not linear because you get down to a, a certain point. You say, wait a minute, I, I needed to tell the reader something in order to make this make sense. And so you go back and, and write it. So it's been, it's been sort of a hopping around process. The plot is very important, uh, much more important than as, I guess, as important as the dialogue and the, and the setting and so on. Egypt, of course, is an incredible setting. Donna and I visited Egypt last Christmas and yeah, had a, had a 
riverboat cruise on the Nile. I wanted to ask you that because you probably have seen Death on the Nile. Yes. Agatha Christie wrote two or three books about murder on the Nile and in Egypt, and, and several several authors have written about it. It's It was a wonder, incredible trip, and how lucky we were to go and get that trip right before for all this coronavirus business happened. So you were saying you went on this journey on the Nile just before the whole coronavirus thing happened? Literally the, the month before. And the greatest thing, you can crawl inside the pyramid at Giza. You can act you can literally crawl into the burial chamber in the in the Great Pyramid. Unbelievable experience. It's not for anybody who's got claustrophobia, I'll tell you. Death comes on swift wings is um and and it's written in first person. So that's different for me also. So it's written in the voice of a twenty three year old woman. Did you find the first-person narrative more challenging, actually, than third-person? No, I'm quite enjoying it, really. I noticed in the first two books that often I would write a letter that was part of the, part of the book. Letters are, of course, in first-person. And I would always really enjoy those, and they would really go fast, and, and they would seem to be very successful. It just occurred to me, well, Gee, maybe you want to write this in first person, the whole thing. So no, I'm 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 enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. For somehow I'm able to get more inside of the character in the first person and stand in the shoe. We talked about standing in the shoes of a character. It seems oh, it's it's just fun to to write it in first person. I don't know that I would always do that. Certainly not always, but and she she's. An interesting person. She's young and she's naive in a way, and and she's also Southern from North Carolina. She's an interesting kind of a temperament type, sort of opposite from my temperament type. Very detailed, organized kind of person. So it's uh it's fun it's fun writing her. And you already have a title because we were talking about titles last time, and you said you always struggle with the titles. I struggle, but I, I I'm feeling like I nailed this one. <laughs> I really I really like this one. Good. Yeah. It, it sounds good. It sounds intriguing. And you also said it's not yeah. just set in the 70s, but there's also another timeline, or there will be another timeline in your mystery. Yes. Would Would yeah. you like to elaborate, or is it too much? No. Yes. Part of the mystery. There are actually two murders that are, are more than that, but. But two that are, I guess, important. One was the murder of an Egyptian queen 3,000 years before this action takes place in the present day. So the characters, main characters are trying to solve two murders at once, one of which happened 3,000 years ago and, and one contemporary, and the, the two, are, two are related. Yeah, there's a sort of part of the book, the beginning of the book, takes place during the, the 3,000 years ago part. Ooh, yeah. Intriguing. That's quite interesting. You said it's quite interesting for you to use the first-person voice in this book. Yeah. And we've yeah. also, I think we've also talked about it a bit last time. What about avoiding appearing omniscient? Because as a first person, you can't be omniscient. Did, right. did that come up for you as an issue During writing yes. or not at all? Yes. It creates some plot intricacies because your your character has to be 
there whenever action takes place. And, and um, for example, part of the action here is that there's a suspect in the murder, in the contemporary murder, who gets questioned by the police. And my character would have no business being in the room while he was being questioned. And so I struggled with that. My partner is a lawyer by profession. So I, I asked her help with this and she said, oh, no, no, that the police would never let, you know, a civilian be in the room when this was happening. And so I had the questioning happen before they called the police. So my character was able to get the information that she needed before. So it's, it's just kind of technical plot things that, that, you have, that you have to be careful about. Tense is hard for some reason. I, you know, if you're not careful, you lapse into past tense versus present tense or whatever. And the book past tense written in first person past tense. And I think we talked last time about this tool that's online. It's called mm -hmm. Writer's Diet. Yeah, you mentioned it. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a wonderful little utility that you can take up to a thousand words and you put it on, you copy it, you put it on the website and it will edit for you and give you a score. I think the best is lean and the, and the other is bloated or, or some, something, some terms like that. And it advises you how to tighten up and, and uh, focus your writing. Very, very useful. And another question just uh, came up for me. As you said, there happen a lot of there happen a lot of murders. Not lot, but just not just one or two more than that. And you also said last time that you read a lot of Agatha Christie and yes. Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes, probably. Yes. And yes. were ever interested in writing? I, I, it's not it's not out yet your book, so I don't know. Just just asking a kind of locked room mystery. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the, yeah, the uh, relationship between Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson is echoes the relationship in my story between a, a hot archaeologist and my first person character. So that she's my, my first person character is kind of the Dr. Watson and, and Cassandra is the is the Sherlock Holmesian kind of person. Agatha Christie was very much of a character developer. She was wonderful at developing quirky characters. And so I, I think I learned learned that from her, reading her. <laughs> Especially Mr. Hercule Poirot. Yes. He's, yes. <laughs> he's quite he's quite a character. He hates being called French. He says, no, no, I'm Belgian. <laughs> Do you think I all I also asked you that the last time because I'm an avid reader of crime fiction and I love mm -hmm. crime fiction. This is your first mystery or crime fiction. Do you think yeah. you will stay in this genre or more or less read or write more in this genre or is it just a one-time thing? I could see another story about these two characters. I don't think my next book would be that, though. I've, I've got some other ideas about other books okay. that follow, but um, I, I could. I could. It's not. It's not. Uh, I think it's not character driven enough for me. More plot driven. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how it gets accepted. You know, we'll we'll see what the response is. I'm I'm interested to see what people what people think. Maybe you'll read it in the manuscript. I will definitely read it if it's a murder mystery. Don't worry. So I can 
Yeah. Definitely said it for myself. So I was wondering, did you get a lot of reviews or feedback from people outside the United States? From um, Yeah, actually, yes. I, I get uh, quite a few purchases and, and quite a lot of feedback from Europe and, and Australia, Canada. Surprising to me and, and gratifying. Yeah, quite, quite a bit. And um, I watch for whether the culture being different in different different parts of the world would, would sort of color how people read the book. I haven't seen that to be a problem. So I would say it, it might be less of a problem somewhere else, especially, I'm not an expert on this, especially Jubinus Blues maybe, mm -hmm. because it's more a reflection of the American history. Yes. It's not something which reflects, let's say, European history. Right. Right, true. I, I'm not sure if you, if I'm explaining myself very well, but no, you are. Um, you know, you you want to, as a writer, you want to be careful that you don't throw the reader out of the story. And there are many, many, many traps and ways that you can do that inadvertently. One of them is, you know, this this um, language accent thing that we talked about. But another would be if if you got if you're writing historical fiction and and you got some piece of history wrong that somebody knows and, and follows that would throw the reader right out of the story. And so I always want to be careful not to do that. Yeah. So far, so good. You know, the um, internet is so valuable to, to those of us that write and, and need to do research. I don't know how anybody ever did it. You, I guess they spent their lives in a library is how they did it. But um, just it's so much, you know, more accessible to be able to To, and, and with Google Earth, even, you can't actually be there. One of the scenes in um, Across a Crowded Room, or no, in, in Jobina's Blues, one of the scenes in Jobina's Blues in the 70s, the English singer is singing in a nightclub in Soho. And on Google Earth, you can actually go on, you know, go into Soho, stand in front of the club. And, uh, you know, imagine how that really was. What a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. Yes, so did I. Is there anything else you would like to add? Anything else you would our listeners to know about your books, about your craft, about... You know, I, I would I would just say that authors love feedback. We we love connection. One of one of the things that I've noticed about I'm a I'm basically a businesswoman, have been, and um, it's a funny business. <laughs> it is a funny business in the in the sense that many of the people in this business are very deeply introverted. The writers, the publishers, the editors are are just and they'll and they'll admit it. It's not like I'm saying something that uh, that they wouldn't recognize. And the connection, the ability to connect with people through our writing is, is just is wonderful. And so I would just, you know, urge people to go on Facebook and, and to go on the critique sites, uh, Amazon and and um, and all those and let us know what you think. Let us know, you know, how we can get better and how we can how we can entertain you better is that that's how we connect and do you also go before the whole coronavirus thing did you also go to events i love to do readings and and book signings and so on and i was i was just getting into doing that when this whole thing hit but yes i love 
I love to do those. Yeah. And within the lesbian writer circle or between all the few publishing houses there are, is there also something like a, let's say, convention? Mm -hmm. Well, the Golden Crown Literary Society um, has an annual convention that's the biggest one and the, and the most well attended. I think they probably have six or 700 people. There's also a mystery writers one that is, I don't think that's particularly lesbian, but, uh, and then there are regional conventions like there's, we have one called the Left Coast Literary Convention that, that, ha that happens in Palm Springs every year. And that's a, a smaller one for people kind of on the, on the West Coast. Texas has one. Provincetown has Women's Week. And part of that has to do with books. Uh, there's one in Rehoboth Beach, also on, on the East Coast. So, you know, there we used to have bookstores. We don't have those anymore. And that used to be a place, lesbian, book, gay, women's bookstores, that used to be a place where women writers and readers could gather and have events and so on. We don't have those anymore. They have gone away. So these other things have replaced them, I think. Yeah. But the Golden, Golden Crown is, is the big one. And it was canceled this year, sadly. It was to be in Albuquerque. And so next year, I think it's in Florida. Which makes me wonder, you said it was canceled. There's been a lot of... Uh, similar ev events which have been cancelled, for example, in Austria, as a, well, not lesbian book events, but just book events, yeah? and also in the UK. And they did something interesting um, with Newcastle Noir. I mention it because I just stumbled across it on Twitter and I watched, I think, half an interview on YouTube. One of the or the organizer of this whole Newcastle Noir event, which is, as you can guess, about crime fiction writing. She did a few interviews uh, on Zoom or via Zoom and put them on YouTube. Mm. Two of them at the same time. It's a bit like a panel, mm. which is a wonderful chance, actually, to stage the event in, in this way. Yes. I was wondering, are they thinking about it as well at the... They, they are. I, I'm not, you know, a, a part of the, um, the planning for that and so on, but I think they are looking at virtual kind of things. But the panels that happen at the in-person events are, are wonderful. They have, they have reading, they have panels of authors reading their books. They have panels that um, talk about the craft and marketing and technology. And they're, it's, it's a really useful, wonderful thing. I've, I've been to everyone since I started writing. Very helpful. And is this also a way for writers and readers to connect? I would say it's probably 25% Authors and 75% readers. That's a guess. I'm not sure about that, but yeah. For, for the readers, it's wonderful to listen to the authors. And do you or do they also have a panel for new authors? Yes, they do. And uh, Golden Crown has a, a new authors training program that one can apply to and, and sign up for and they have faculty for that and so on and they always have you know presentations of, of, of those too. What a great outfit. I was also wondering how it's a strange it might be a strange question maybe I don't know. How would you say are books received which are written in British English with a certain kind of vocabulary 
and so on. How would you think they would be received by a American audience? Since usually, usually books from from the UK are adapted to American yeah. English. Well, yeah, I suspect. Also, I don't know this for the by far the most popular genre of lesbian fiction is romance, contemporary romance. And I think contemporary romance readers are looking for contemporary language. I, I would think American English, I, I'd suspect. I'm not an expert on this, but I'm never at a loss for an opinion. <laughs> yeah, I asked for your opinion and I'm interested in your opinion. So yeah, you might be right. You might be right. Because it, it, it is indeed quite different, is it not? When you stumble across a British English spelling or use a phrase or use of vocab and so on. Which can also be said the other way around. Because we know this lovely lady from the UK. She's really adorable and lovely. And she's in her, I think she's 90. She's been 90 only. And she was a teacher. And she always took in, when she was retired, she took in students from abroad who came to the UK to improve their English. And we've talked about reading because she likes to go to the library and get some books. And she said, I think a few years ago, she said, you know, usually when I take out a book and I look at it and I open the book and I see it's in American English, I put it back. <laughs> so... She said, I don't have time for that. She's allowed, yeah. So meeting your readers or hearing from your readers would make your day to learn more about what they like and what they don't like. Connecting, connecting. Yeah. Uh, that was also an interesting part in your book when you wrote, in Chobina's Blues, when you wrote about this time in South Africa. Have you been to South Africa? Uh, no, I haven't. This was an incident, a similar incident that really happened to this uh, British artist. And so I got a lot of information by what really happened. I have a, I have a good friend who is from there that I've, and I've learned some things from her and, and it, it was just research about the setting and about the politics and the time and um, this real event that happened to, to this pop singer. There was also an interesting story you told me last time about growing up in the South and you mentioned going to church on Sundays and yes. the difference between the men and the women. Yes. Well, it, we were Southern Baptists. We went to church on Sunday, twice on Sunday, in the morning and in the evening, every Sunday. And my father was a what's called a deacon one of the leaders of the church. So we, we always were required to be there. And the, the morning, the morning consisted of what called Sunday school. And people went into, you know, rooms with their own age groups and so on and studied the Bible and, and that sort of thing. And then there was a break and then the sermon, everybody got back together and, and uh, the preacher came on and taught the lesson for that week to everybody. And the men, the men were very different on Sunday than they were during the rest of the week. During the week, they were farmers and merchants and factory workers. Then on Sunday, they, Saturday night, they took a bath <laughs> and, and put on their white shirts and their, and their suits and slicked their hair back and went to church and Literally, as a kid, I would know somebody, a grown-up man, 
during the week. And then I would see him at church and I would think it was a completely different person. I, I didn't, I didn't put those two together, but so the man, it was a Sunday was a, a fellowship day for the man. And they would, after that morning Sunday school session, the break would happen and they would go stand out in front of the church and smoke and joke with each other and slap each other on the back and enjoy themselves, enjoy the fellowship of their of their buddies and so on. The women, on the other hand, would either go to the nursery and get the babies settled down because they couldn't be crying in the in the sermon and interrupting everything. Or they would be in the kitchen preparing for some meal after the, the service or whatever. So the women just con- continued their week. They did that all week. And then they went on Sunday and did it again at the church. You know, as a grown-up adult, I'm looking back on that. And they had fellowship too, the women, you know. But from my little 11, 12-year-old eyes, the men were having a lot more fun than the women were. So part there, there's a there's a scene in the book about about that. You said women also had fellowship, but they also had more responsibilities still. I mean, the men had all the fun, laughing and slapping each mm-hmm. other on the back and smoking and whatnot. And yet, although the women had fellowship, they still had to work. Yes. Whereas the man could enjoy, just enjoy themselves and shed their responsibilities at least for one day. Yes. And, you know, it would never have occurred to a woman to walk out and stand in front of the church with those men. It would, it would just not have occurred to her to do that. That shaped me in some kind of a profound, weird way. <laughs> Not everybody's experience was the same as mine. The scene in the book and the and the one that really happened to me was that I was walking, I got, I talked my mother into letting me skip the Sunday school part and to get ready and, and come for the church part. And so I was walking down this gravel road to the church and I'm like 13 years old or so. 13 or 14. And I looked over at the men standing in front of the church. And in the middle of those men was a woman that I had never seen before. And I just was, I just was awestruck that this woman was out there with those. And it, it just kind of hit me like between the eyes. Wow. Maybe women really can stand out in front of the churches. And she was, uh, she was new in town. It was in the summertime. She was going to be a teacher the following year. She, it hadn't been in her culture in her, I mean, that she could not do that. She didn't know she couldn't do it. And so when I, when I told her about it years and years and years later and told her how that experience, you know, just kind of knocked me off my feet, she said, well, I didn't really know. I didn't know I wasn't supposed to do that. The implication being if she had known, she wouldn't have done it. So that's that. But it's also interesting that not a single one of the men told her. Yeah. And, and in fact, knowing her, I knew her so well for so many years she would have done it 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 was it was her really <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no matter what <laughs> no matter what <laughs> great sounds like a great woman she was she was thank you Jane for thank you you're welcome for doing this again and this uh-huh. time I have the feeling it worked out wonderful <laughs> I think so yeah Zoom didn't disappoint us Enjoy your wonderful Californian day. Thank you. Okay, bye. I hope you enjoyed this fascinating conversation and we'll meet again 
at Book Lovers Companion. <lacht>